Folks, I love the epic 80s film American Flyers, watching Kevin Costner with his awesome push broom mustache racing around the Colorado Monument on a bike with down tube shifters and the old hairnet helmet. What's not to love? Well, guess what? You too can live your own version of American Flyers this month at the Tour of the Moon, the iconic sportive that goes through the Colorado Monument. It's the final event of the 2021 Royal Massive Sportive calendar, and it's going on September 25th at Grand Junction. And as you may know, if you are a member of Outside Plus, you get 25% off registration to all Roll Massif events. Outside Plus, again, is our digital membership that includes exclusive content on Villainous.com, magazine subscriptions, two free books from VeloPress, a photo package from Finisher Picks, an account with Gaia GPS, training advice from Today's Plan, and the list goes on and on. You can go to Velanews.com forward slash Outside Plus to see the full package. And hey, while you're there, start growing your mustache. We still have four months to go to the Tour of the Moon, and I want to see all of you looking like Costner with an epic mustache showing up at the event this year. Again, velonews.com forward slash outside plus, and you can learn more about the Tour of the Moon by going to rollmassive.com. Okay, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on the last day of August. Busy Tuesday here at the home offices. Uh, we have the Vuelta España chugging into its mountainous finale this week. And second half of the show, we're going to talk to Andrew Hood all about what we can expect on some of these big summit finishes. We got the uh, Lagos de Covadonga coming up um, and the Gamon, Gamonitairu, the Anglaroos little brother, big brother, that uh, is so difficult to pronounce. Anyway, that's coming up this week, and we're all waiting to see if this odd Christian Iking character can defend Red against all of the GC favorites coming up behind him. Uh, hoodie coming up, second half of the show. But before that, we have a big, spicy meatball of a topic to tackle on the uh, Villain News podcast, that being gravel controversy, the latest gravel drama, gravel beef gravel kerfuffle, call it what you will, the latest controversy lighting up the gravel world. Uh, and that, of course, uh, involves the apparent team tactics used by cinch cycling at Steamboat Gravel and other races and how it speaks to a wider conversation about the delta between the written rules and the unwritten spirit rules of gravel, what races can do to try and preserve a level playing field, the gap between races catering to age group athletes versus elite athletes, and how prize money, media attention, and all this thing, and all these things that like Velo News does, uh, throws a monkey wrench into the entire equation. Um, and joining me to discuss this very fun topic is Mr. Ben Delaney, who is kind of the um, patient zero of this current uh, gravel drama, as you were the man to break the story, uh, because you were there at SBT Gravel. Ben Delaney, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hello, Fred. Hello, everybody. And yes, I was at Steamboat Gravel. And I, one of the things that I love about gravel is that so many of us can can just jump into the swimming pool and we're all participating together. And and yes, it is this intersection of many things. It's it's elite level competition. It's uh, good tomfoolery fun. Uh, it's mullet racing business at the front, party at the back. And, and a lot of these things, whether it's uh, men and women racing together or aero bars don't really affect 98% of the, the paying customers at these events. Um, but they do affect the top of the sport. And I do argue that gravel racing is a sport. And, and, uh, 
I think sports need to have rules so we can all agree on what it is that we're doing or what it is that the fast kids at the front are doing. So I think that's why this is a, it's a fascinating subject and it's definitely hit, hit a nerve. Yeah. And the broad focus here is that ever since, I mean, we've been covering this since at least 2017, the delta that exists between the written rules of gravel and the unwritten spirit rules of gravel and how that gap allows for athletes to, I wouldn't say game the system, but gain advantages. You know, if the written rules are basically like, don't be a jerk, um, you know, don't cross over the yellow line and have a good time, then, and the unwritten rules say sort of, hey, you know, play by the spirit of gravel, which is amorphous and unwritten, then riders who really want to gain an advantage can do so. And uh, over the years, this controversy has focused on stuff like the use of aero bars, uh, whether or not pro road teams coming in were going to ruin the spirit gravel, whether or not riders should stop at feed zones. And I feel like a lot of this discussion has been focused on the men's side of racing. But right now, the big hot button one is focused solely on women's racing. And the specifics of it are this. Uh, at Steamboat Gravel, um, Lauren DiCrescenzo scored this thrilling win. She blasted the competition. And afterward, it became evident that Lauren, uh, who rides for Tom Danielson's cinch cycling team, um, had teammates with her along the way. Perhaps they were riding as pacers. Perhaps they were giving her water bottles. Uh, perhaps they were powering the group along. And this caused drama uh, within the women's field and the men's field of people uh, doing what happens is very 2021 story afterwards, which is taking to social media to voice this dis their displeasure with the team tactics here because gravel the spirit of gravel is that it's supposed to be an individual competition and it's supposed to be you against the elements says who yeah exactly that's the spirit <laughs> and, says who though and like like all cycling controversies this has played out largely on social media with people uh, cocooning themselves with their followers and writing things to get likes and smiley emojis and sort of, you know, uh, barking into the echo chamber on both sides. And thus, there hasn't been a whole lot of like actual discussion, but we've been talking to people on all sides of this stuff. And so, Ben Delaney, I want to start here with you. You were in this group. You were at Steamboat Gravel. You were in the group with Lauren for a while. Um, you were also talking to people. I mean, how did this story come to you? How did you pursue it? And um, what was some of the feedback that you got when you wrote this initial piece? The, the, the hot subject was not stopping for Lauren, not having to stop for water. And I think that the tactics, whether it's Lauren or anyone else in gravel racing, trying to figure out how the heck to get yourself through a long event is part of the fun and part of the challenge. Whether that's, do I run like a really thin, skinny, slick tire because that'll be faster on the road? but I might flat in the chunky gravel or do I run a thicker tire to ensure that I don't flat, but then pay the price on, on the pavement. And it's a similar thing with, with hydration. It's like, well, it's, it's faster not to stop, but if I carry 10 gallons of water on my back, that would probably be maybe slower on the hill. So that's, I think that's part of the fun of the challenge for, of gravel racing for, for lots of us. Um, with Lauren, uh, she had since teammates there, and since is unique in that it, I, I can only think of two team, two gravel teams really that are all wearing the same shirts out there. There's Cinch and there's Avis, formerly Panaracer. So those are the only two like full on male female gravel teams that I can think of. Um, so Lauren started with a Camelback, like many riders did, and two tall bottles went through those. And then coming into the I want to say the fourth feed zone, she handed a bottle to one of her Cinch teammates 
who went ahead uh, to the feed zone, filled it up for her and uh, chased back and handed it to her so she didn't have to stop. Um, I was at that point, I wasn't in that group anymore because I had stopped at the previous <laughs> uh, aid station because I had neglected to bring a camel back. Um, so I pulled over and stopped and was unable to chase back on. So that's, that's a part of like, whether it's, it's you're a front of the pack racer like Lauren or a mid pack racer like myself trying to figure out when you make your pit stop is, is uh yeah, part of the game. So why that was controversial even though it was, there was you know, no rule at Simo Gravel specified thou shalt not take a bottle from a friend is Simo does have rules that you can, there's no outside help. You can't have teammates or friends or spouses standing by the side of the road handing you a water bottle uh, because that it's understood that if that allowing a rider to continue racing is faster than a rider having to stop. So at Steamboat, the deal is everybody has to stop. Or no, you don't have to stop. <laughs> um, but if, if you want to take on supplies, you can do so at the you know set up aid stations where volunteers staff them. Um, so the, the other women didn't have someone handing them a water bottle. Uh, so that that changed um, the dynamic. And, and it was to the point where we had two of our had a photographer and a videographer who happened to be standing at that aid station and watch the thing happen. And then one of the people working with the race, Matt Charity, the husband of the big boss, Amy, well, you know, saw it happen and mentioned it to uh, our staff, like, should we report this? <laughs> and I thought that was pretty telling that, you know, Matt married to the woman who runs the race wasn't really clear. Like, is that against the rules or is that not against the rules? Um, so I think that was, that was sort of like the emblematic uh, point of the event. And again, I mean, this is, yeah, this is an advantage for sure. Like when you don't have to stop at the aid station, you get an advantage, but you know, and looking through the rules at S that steamboat gravel, I mean, like you said, there's, it's basically like, have fun, be smart, wear a helmet, centerline rule, ride on the right, no direct outside support from friends, family, sponsors on the side of the road, only stop at aid stations, pass with care, no headphones, no e-bikes, no aero bars, use the porta potties, don't poop in the forest and deal with your own <laughs> mechanicals. Don't litter. I mean, there's nothing in there that says like, hey, you know, you can't have teammates pull for you. There's nothing in there that says you can't have a teammate go up the road, get it, fill your water bottle and bring it back. And so, you know, I guess that is the the heart of this thing, which is that Lauren DiCrescenzo and Cinch or whatever broke no, uh, none of the written rules. But there is this push within gravel to keep the spirit of gravel to be this, uh, you know, individual challenge, sort of mono mano um, type battle. And that's something that we've written about for years. You know, earlier this year before Unbound Gravel, Colin Strickland wrote about how, you know, the men's race, um, you know, there were people who were like trying to attack through feeds, uh, water stops, even though there's sort of this gentleman's agreement that we're all going to race together and find it out and how, you know, he felt that. We have this opportunity as elite gravel racers to help set the etiquette that's going to guide the sport into the future. And I thought it was a well-written piece, even if there were parts of it that I saw. I thought like, boy, you know, how are you going to enforce this stuff if there's no written rules? And, you know, it's it's one thing when you're all out there racing for having a good time or whatever. But, you know, something like Steamboat Gravel, $5,000 for the winner. $2,500 for second place, plus a ton of media exposure. I mean, Velo News, we are 100% guilty in putting pressure on the 
unwritten versus written rules because, hey, you win one of these big gravel races, like you're going to get a story on VeloNews.com. We're going to interview you. You like your sponsors. You'll have this big platform. And so, you know, when I started to see the comments come out on social media afterwards, you know, writers like Amity Rockwell, Sarah Stern, Whitney Allison talking about how this was violating the spirit of gravel. It was like, yeah, that may be. But, you know, there's a lot at stake here. And, um, you know, there's if, if, if the rule book says you can't do it, then you can't. But if there's nothing that says you can't do it, then at some point someone's going to try it. To me, I saw Cinch's tactics at Steamboat Gravel being the logical next step for anyone who wants to gain a competitive advantage to, to do so. Sure, sure. And to play devil's, devil's, <laughs> to play devil's advocate, if the object of a bicycle race is to win the bicycle race, why not be smart about it? You know, why not sit in a draft instead of riding solo into the wind for 140 miles? Um, that's another crux here. Like, is this a team sport? Is gravel a team sport? Or is it an individual sport? Because in road cycling, what Cinch did just makes good sense, right? That's common. Like at the Vuelta now, you see people go back to the cars all the time to get bottles <laughs> for their leaders, right? And then that's not a moral outrage. That's just good teamwork. Um, same for giving the team leader a bike or a wheel or something after a crash or a puncture. Like that's just good teamwork because it's a team sport. So I think, you know, Lauren has been put in a unfair spot where she's being held to a standard that isn't spelled out specifically. Um, and I think Lauren was obviously incredibly strong at Steamboat. Um, it's not a matter of like, well, if she didn't have a bottle, then she would have lost by 10 minutes instead of having won by 10 minutes. Um, so it's not that black and white. Uh, but at the same time, an advantage is an advantage. And I think it's, I think it's 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 high time, at least for the big races, to just to to draw a line, say like this is okay or it's not okay, and then we can be done with the the back and forth arguing about imaginary spirit rules that you know gravel likes to say. There's no rules in gravel; just don't be lame. It's like, well, what the heck does that mean? You know, I think that's that's it's unfair to have this very nebulous, vague. We've got no rules. Well, except for that rule, and, and except for that rule. Well, where? Show me this rule. Well, it's not really a rule, but you still have to follow it. I'm like, well, who who's writing these not rule rules? Someone on Twitter. Well, okay. It's so the underlying like that's lame. I mean elephant in the room is the Tommy D factor of this, which is that, you know, look, Tom Danielson, uh, he has had two doping dings against him. He's a uh, controversial figure in American cycling, to say the least. He's built this cycling team from the ground up into, you know, a thriving coaching business and racing business. But like, I think the underlying message here is that it's Tommy D's team. And if it had been, if it had been team Abus or gravel racer or a the underlying racer. message from whom? Like just from social media yeah, backlash? Yeah, 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 yeah. The social media backlash. Yeah, I just want to say like that, that's not a Velanews. No, 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 no. Velanews, we're just, hey, like we're out here interviewing people, seeing what's going on. The underlying message that I've seen in social media posts has been like, well, this is Tommy D, F Tommy D. He's a doper. He's, of course, he's going to be the one to like push the rules. And, you know, what, whatever that may be. Uh, but I think that 
I, I do think that in a different world, and this is just like Panaracer doing this, then people are like, ah, lame Panaracer doing their thing, grumble, grumble, go back and like not worry about it. But since it's Cinch and it's Tommy. But it wouldn't be a lightning rod. Yeah, yeah, that's what makes it a lightning rod. Um, and that's what like, you know, gets everyone all upset about it, which then has led to a couple of truly bizarre uh, social media moments, which is one, um, Danielson posting a 15 minute Instagram video talking about um, the whole situation and sort of the emotional distress that is placed on him. And um, Lauren giving interviews to Cycling News and writing on her Facebook page about it, which I guess this is the this is the next little wrinkle in the story, which is that in some of the messaging that's come out of Lauren and look, we love Lauren. She's been on the podcast, open door policy. She can come out on podcast whenever she wants. There has been this sense from Cinch of like, hey, you know, we actually didn't have a, you know, this was just sort of an organic um, product of the race. You know, there were guys up ahead who were dropped and they just kind of yada yada happened to be in the group. And, you know, there's, this wasn't like a strategic thought out thing. We didn't come into it with a plan. And I mean, our reporting and our conversations with people in the Cinch universe is no, that is not accurate that like this was exactly the plan this was like a strategy to use team tactics to help uh lauren win this race and i guess that's an element where i've been like kind of scratching my head and saying um is that uh, are you guys sure that's the message you want to put out there what, what's your read on that ben two things uh one is that yes yeah, since team members have told us that there's often a plan specifically for the team to work for Lauren, men and women, to help her win the bike race. Um, that's what team members have told us. But I think in the broader picture, that's sort of immaterial, whether like you intended to or not. I think the discussion needs to be like, is this allowed or not? You know, like, did you, did you make a plan to go across the yellow line or did you just go across the yellow line? I don't think that's relevant. <laughs> it's like, you know, did you or didn't you? And is that allowed or not allowed? I think it's as, as simple as that. Like, you know, whether whether this, you know, two years ago, someone decided, okay, at this point, there's going to be a water bottle handoff or whether it was just like, hey, man, I'm out of water. You got some? Yeah, hold on. Like, I, I don't th- think that matters. I just, I think it matters of like, is that allowed or not? Um, and yeah, I mean, it does seem Lauren clearly feels attacked, and that's understandable. This social media is a bit of a nightmare. Um, but I don't think it's a uh, all or nothing thing as if Lauren simply sat behind a bunch of dudes and did nothing but freewheeled while they pushed her up a mountain and fed her water. That's obviously ridiculous. She was out there kicking ass and drilling, <laughs> right? Um, so it's not this either like, uh, you know, men do everything or women do all their own work. And I, I've heard from several female racers who are the whole uh, situation frustrates them because you know, they feel like they've been struggling or they, not they feel like, but they have been struggling for, for equity in the sport for a long time. And having this phrase is, well, well, you can only do well if a man helps you kind of makes their eyes cross with frustration. That's, that's clearly understandable. But yeah, whether, whether it was a plan, planned or not, again, I think that's immaterial. It's like, is this behavior allowed at a race? If so, 
let it run it wide open. Or if not, let's clearly specify this so we're all on the same page. No, That's my take. I, I hear you on that. I think that Lauren would have won this race nonetheless. She is an absolute beast. I mean, you look at her results in road racing and in these large, large these big gravel races, and it like it speaks for itself. Like she's a very talented athlete. She's been doing this forever. She has a crazy work ethic. She's an incredible story. We heard it on the podcast a few weeks ago. So I think that like you know trying to chalk up her victory just to the fact that she had you know team help or whatever is is ridiculous. That said, if I were the PR consultant for cinch cycling, my advice to them would be like, yeah, own it. Come out. Yeah, we had a total team plan. We executed. We kicked butt. We, you know, we we did what we needed to do. Lauren's an incredible athlete. She won. We helped her get water. We tried to give her every advantage we could. We worked within the rules and we won the race. And, you know, until these gravel races make specific rules, barring, you know, a, a team coordination, team effort, you know, everyone, you know, working for the common goal, then we're going to we're going to operate this way. Um, And I guess that's a segue to the next couple points I want to make and discuss with you here, Ben, which is that, I mean, this isn't new. Like I was at Unbound Gravel in 2018 and the winner there had, you know, uh, husband ride with her the entire time. And I've heard from other people that, you know, many, many winners at that race, female winners with that race have had sort of one pacer, you know, a friend, a husband, boyfriend or someone to, to work with them. But it's open up the question of like, well, how do you combat this? Is it, um, do you have separate women start? Do you, uh, you know, do you start them like way afterwards, way beforehand? Um, that's one theory. I can tell you, I was at, uh, BWR San Diego, which has specific starts for elite men, different categories, elite women. Um, and, well, here's the thing. Um, Alex House, friend of the podcast, he flatted out of the elite men's group and took a while to like change his tire or whatever. And by the time he got going, he was in with the elite women. And there was, you know, there was like a break up the road, I think. And he was trying to get back into the elite men's group. So he took some big old pull and inadvertently pulled the women's race back together and, you know, felt, felt bad about it. He's like, I'm racing my own race. I, I'm trying to get back up to the elite men. So even that race where they separated the fields, there was some... Um, you know, it, these things can't occur in a snow globe, unfortunately. Like this is not pro road racing for a reason. And because of that, there, you know, with with the elite women's field, there's probably always going to be some type of impact by male riders. Well, and that's I mean that that interplay is part of the fun. It's like local racing where like race together scored separately, whether it's like different age groups or men and women and um, yeah, I love the all in together part. Um, and yeah, I'll be the first to say I'd certainly benefit from racing with the women myself. Of like sometimes I'll be hanging on for dear life at the what's the effectively the front of the the women's race and and that's a cool thing because so much in road racing we're all split off into tiny little segments, right? Never never to to cross paths. So yeah, I love that uh exchange even though it makes for some weird dynamics. And, but yeah, short, short of like having, breaking it all down and making it road racing, where like, here's the men's 40 plus, here's the women's pro, here's the women's 30 plus. I don't know how you could eliminate that. And, you know, the tension is, I one of the spots of tension is between the happenstance, like the Alex Howe situation uh, and the, you know, intentional planned 
we're all on the same team going for one common goal here. And, and not every, you know, sort of like the Olympics, <laughs> not every team is not every person is lining up with a seven person team, right? You know, you've got Belgium with eight guys and you've got Ecuador with two. I mean, that worked out pretty well for Ecuador at the Olympics, but um, yeah, it's just a, it's just a giant mixed bag. It is. And you know, you hear from some of these people who've gone over and done a bunch of these like European grand fondos where there's prize purses and, you know, like a whole media infrastructure built around who's winning the big grand fondos and like X Tour de France doper dudes lining up. And you do hear stories of, you know, the, the, the best women have these entire fleets. They've got full squads. Oh yeah, male riders yeah. Uh, pacing them on the climbs and pacing them on the descents, and Car- carrying their water, going ahead, getting food so they don't have to stop. Yeah, and yeah, it's a well-oiled machine for sure. And I get, I you know, from a gravel perspective, I can see uh, the people within the gravel saying, "We, you know, hey, we don't want that." You know, like we kind of like the fact that you can be an individual athlete and not have to rely on a whole team and an infrastructure to be able to compete and still do well. And so I, I do understand the pushback from riders saying like, look, I don't want to have to organize, hire a bunch of dudes to like tow me around. If I want to be competitive in these races, I think that's lame. You know, maybe we need to do something, but then that butts up against what the organizers are thinking too. Cause I've posed this question to plenty of gravel organizers and some of the perspective they have is like, Hey, you know, our model customer is like the Ben Delaney's and Fred Dreyer's of the world. The guys and gals who are like mid-pack, who are doing this for a life-changing experience, who, you know, who are doing this as a personal goal. And to a certain degree, their overall experience is made better by the mass start element of it. Like, it wouldn't be as fun if you're just racing in your category with like 35 other people and trying to beat them. Part of the enjoyment of big gravel races is you're all in this together, all in the same course at the same time, camaraderie, competition, helping each other to the finish line. And our core customer, our paying customer are the people who really like that element of the race. And yes, there's the front of the race and Velenus is there covering it and there's prize money. And, you know, but if we're going to create rules that govern everyone, then there's going to be some of these gaps that occur between the written rule book, which is to, to govern you know, the, the Joe and Jill six pack out there, mid pack out there. And, you know, the Colin Strickland's and Amity Rockwell's of the world. For sure. Yeah. And again, I, I very much appreciate the writing together, helping each other element, whether that's, yeah. Yeah. Getting a CO2 cartridge from somebody when you're suffering the, the nth flat out there. Or, uh, at Unbound Gravel was riding with, Flavio Oliveira for a time and she handed me an extra cold Coke that she grabbed at the, at the stop yeah, and jokingly saying, well, thanks for pulling. Here's a Coke. And I was like, God bless you. This is the best Coke I've ever had in my life. And I, I love that about gravel racing, uh, the, the mixed fields and the helping out strangers and old friends and new friends. And I think that's, that's again, a part of the fun. Wait a second. You took a Coke from a racer? Correct. Unbound gravel? Oh. Uh, yes, I did. Ben I think I'm going to have to report you to um, the organizers. I actually, I'm going to have to go through the rule book to see if that is allowed because we might have to um, bump, you know, whoever's in 364th place may be in 363rd place now um, going forward. Yeah, it's look, it's it's controversy. This one and others that is not going to go away. It's something that we have very much enjoyed covering with gravel, which is this sport that it's in its infancy, growing, getting more momentum, getting more attention you know, trying to keep its uh, sort of its um, grassroots feel 
and the tension that that creates. And that story is not going to go away. It's just going to morph and change. And next year, there will be some other gravel controversy to uh, talk about. Now, you know, you see all these people on social media saying, well, it's just a sign that gravel's a fad and it's jumped the shark. And like, this is a sign that's going away. Uh, that's That's one area where I do have a firm take. And that take is... What is that? Your take is dumb. <laughs> that is a bad take. <laughs> uh, water bottle gate is not going to sink gravel. Aero bars gate, not going to sink gravel. Feed zone gate, not going to sink gravel. Gravel's doing fine, folks. Yeah, you're, you're heading out to Belgian Waffle Ride Utah yourself, right? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go out to BWR Utah. I will have zero pacers. I will stop at many feed zones. Um, I don't think I'll have an aero bar. If I do, maybe I'll have it coming off the back of my bike. Um, but uh, I, my, my goal is to have fun, enjoy, um, and just do the best I can do out there. So Belgian Waffle, Utah, just throw one more little tiny wrinkle into this. We were doing it last year and the front group was able to pull water bottles off a motorcycle. I remember talking to Pete Stetton about this and he was like, oh yeah, it's fine. It's totally equal because like everybody in the front group gets to pull water bottles. So like, mm. <laughs> okay. So for like the eight of you up there, okay, you don't have to stop. But what about like the, the, the next two groups chasing behind? How, how does that work? And like, did that fundamentally change who won that race? No, of course not. But I think, I think that just shows how it's up to each promoter to sort of create to set the table for the party that they're going to have. You know, Bills and Waffle Ride San Diego also had uh, neutral support vehicles following like a pro road race. So again, you know, you know, Stetna had it, I guess derailleur was starting to fall off. He pulled over a pro mechanic jumps out. Zip, zip, zip. He's back in business. Um, is that against the spirit of gravel? I don't know, but I think it, it is. I don't realize I'm kind of rambling on and on the same point here. I just think it would be helpful for my little brain if for each race say like, okay this is this is the party we're we're putting on here and this is this is how it goes all the while the commissaires in Igly Switzerland at the UCI are just reading these villain news stories and just like rubbing their hands with glee and being like aha this is what happens when you do not have the rules ah you silly Americans uh, well I think that's a good place to uh, put a pin on it Ben Delaney you've been a wonderful co-host to take us deep inside the latest gravel beef going on out there uh, sign up for a gravel race do it you'll have a great time and if you win or not is uh, not important so long as you have a great uh, experience okay we're gonna go hear from Andrew Hood about the final week of the Vuelta a España. Okay, now back on the podcast here to lead us into the final week of the Vuelta a España. It's Andrew Hood. Andy, uh, you are coming to us Monday rest day at the Man Cave. You're heading back to the race tomorrow. I feel like one of the pleasures for you in covering the race must be the, uh, the ability to like go to a couple stages Go back home, sleep in your bed, eat good food, do some laundry, and then be able to head back to the race. Uh, that's what you got going up this coming week. Are you, I assume you're going out with like some clean shirts and new change of underpants and stuff like that. Yeah, I tell you, man, after 10 days of a 9,500 degree weather, I certainly needed to change the change of the clothes. It was, that was a rough stretch between those last two weekends down there in the southern Spain. And I tell you, everybody talking to riders today in the rest day they were all pretty happy to be 
up in northern Spain. It's the last week of the Vuelta. It's been really hot from the beginning. You know, starting in mid-August, everyone knew it was going to be hot. Plus, just the way the route kind of stayed in the southern half of Spain, really for the for really up until now. So now, between Tuesday going into Sunday, it's going to be cool. Temperature is going to be in the mid to high 60s. Could even be some rain in a few of these big stages. So very different kind of race. Yeah, and I think we're all expecting things to heat up proverbially here in the battle because um, this past weekend we had these two mountain stages, back-to-back stages, 14 and 15, um, Don Benito to Pico Villeque. I can't pronounce it. Anyway, two big mountain stages. And I think heading into the Welta, I predicted those would have some big battles on it. But it just sounds like it was so hot and so miserable and everyone was so tired that we just really didn't see the attacks and the the battles materialize there. Well, yeah, on the stage 14 to uh, Pico Verrugas, there you go, there was uh, kind of a block headwind up at the top of that mountain. Um, That's why, um, you know, you just didn't get really the the GC bombs that people were expecting. And then on the Sunday stage, the Barranco was just, you know, the profile of the stage, the harder climbs were kind of in the middle of the stage. And there wasn't really any terrain to move so much uh, uh, late in the Sunday stage. And plus, you had Intermarche. They really kind of stepped up. They're protecting New Jersey for odd Christian Iking, who, you know, for that team, it's a big deal. You know, of course, they stepped up to the World Tour this year. So for them to be leading one of the Grand Tours, you know, they're going all in, even if, you know, everyone expects him to kind of fade out uh, mid next week. But, uh, you know, the team really stepped up and rode really well over the weekend. And so that kind of between those two factors, the heat, the wind, and Intermarche kind of controlling things, uh, not a whole lot happened on the GC front. So I think we're all expecting bombs to fly this week, specifically stage uh, Wednesday's stage to Lagos de Covadonga, big famed crazy climb that comes after a, a series of big Cat 1 climbs. And then uh, stage on Thursday, which is the famed uh, the Angliru's you know, ugly cousin, the Gamoni Tairu. Um, but a question I have for you, Hoodie, is you you mentioned it there. I think we all thought that odd Christian Iking, one of the best names in the Peloton, was going to fade up to this point, and that his Intermarsh, Wanti Gobert, his plucky Intermarche team was just going to like wilt in the heat. And they have not. And they're actually looking pretty good. And I mean, his gap back to Roglic in third place is a minute 36, which is, that's, that's a pretty good gap. In Grand Tour Racing, um, do you think there is any way uh, in a Ice Cube's chance, in a hot sun, Spanish sunshine's chance of uh, keeping this jersey and fending off old primos on these uh, big mountain stages and the final time trial to come? Uh, I would say almost zero chance. Uh, he's never really done it in a, a big race like this before. Kind of a journeyman rider, you know, he's one of these kind of breakaway specialist kind of, you know, Peloton helper riders. Um, you know, he's in a great spot right now. And you're right, it's quite a bit of time. Um, I don't think Rowich is more worried, but, you know, some strange things could happen in the podium fight. So, you know, it's not so much Rowich. I think through attrition, Rowich will get that time back and, and get back in the driver's seat. But, you know, there's a big battle for the podium between guys. Jack Haig is in there, uh, Moe Star, Enio still wants to get a podium spot if they can. Um, you know, so that's where it could get kind of get complicated with uh, odd Christian still hanging in there. So I think you'll see some early attacks just to just to get rid of him. I think uh, all those teams like to see him out of the frame already on Covelonga. 
on Wednesday, just just to not have any compl- unsurprises there or complications. It's so funny the um, the the plucky rider from the plucky team and their defense of the race leading the Grand Tour. We don't see it every year. In fact, we don't even see it every like three or four years. It's sort of this um, instance that comes around every few years. And there've been some like some really famous ones. I remember uh, Francois Simon trying to hold yellow from Lance Armstrong in the 2001 Tour de France. Uh, that was one that tugged at the heartstrings. I feel like we always get them in the tour and it's always some like Frenchman. And of course, Thomas Volkler, 2011. I mean, that's probably the most famous one. I mean, he almost held onto it. He almost won. But um, the defense of the race leader's jersey, we do see sort of bring the best out of these um, riders that, you know, are kind of these, they're like typical Saivoche unsung heroes. You know, they're these people who are very talented and hardworking and great, but they just don't have on paper the results to be able to do that. So I'm really curious to see how long Odd Christian holds on to. Uh, I say, yeah, between Kovadonga and then Gamoni Tairu, he's probably going to lose it. But, you know, we've seen crazier stuff in cycling. We've seen dogged defenses of Grand Tour leaders' jerseys. And um, maybe this will, like, elevate Odd Christian into the, uh, you know, the, the, the small circle of, like, plucky defenders who held it almost to the end. Well, the the number one in that category, of course, is Oscar Pareto. You know, back in the way back in the day, in very different circumstances. But, uh, you know, he, same thing. He was just kind of a journeyman rider, you know, occasional stage winner maybe. Just got this huge head start. All the drama with Floyd and Landis. And uh, Floyd got disqualified. And, and old Oscar, he's walking around here at the Welta. He's on the podium every day. You know, Spanish winner, 2006, uh, Tour de France. Yeah, maybe that'll happen with old Odd Christian, and Odd Christian will become like a household name in cycling. I, I saw someone tweet out, you know, sort of poking fun at the name, and Lars, our uh, Norwegian or Danish Twitter guy, tweeted back. He's like, oh, Odd Christian is not that, you know, not that strange of a name where I, you know, in Denmark, Sweden. Like, I just love the idea of, you know, like dozens of Odd Christians walking around, you know, like the Bort license plate. It's like, Odd Christian? No, I am also an Odd Christian. Uh, great, great cycling name, Hoodie. Um, so let's get into Kovadonga and the Gamoni Tairu stages. Um, these are big, painful days. Stage 17, this is to Lagos de Kovadonga. We go over a Cat 3, a Cat 1, right into another Cat 1, right into the above category, Lagos de Kovadonga. Famous climb in Welta history. They don't go up there every year. I'm trying, I think the one of the most recent times it was like uh, Naro Quintana won a stage up there. But what can you say about that region of Spain and why that climb is so challenging? Before uh, the Angliru came on the radar, the, the Covadonga was kind of the big climb at the Welta. Uh, it's been featured in the race quite a few times over the years. And like, like kind of like, you know, uh, Alpe d'Huez or, or uh, Mont Ventoux, you know, they don't put it in there every year. But it, it really is considered one of the, uh, you know, uh, magical, mythical climbs on the Welta. And, uh, you know, that's that's way back in the day. That's the stage where uh, Miguel Indurain stepped off the bike back in the 1996 Vuelta España. He was kind of forced to ride that uh, that year's Vuelta after he lost the tour that year. He won the gold medal in the time trial. And then the team was forcing him to race the Vuelta. He didn't want to go. And, uh, you know, that stage, I think that climb was just so hard. He just said to hell with it and stepped off his bike in the, in the valley running up to the base of that climb. I've climbed up that climb and it's just unrelenting. It just gets up to these big 10, 12 degree uh, walls. It just, you know, it's unending. It's kind of, uh, it's in many ways, some of these climbs are almost harder 
than you know these Anglilu climbs or these uh, what we're going to see on Thursday because those climbs are so steep. You know, everyone says that you really can't attack. You only just kind of go at your own pace. There's no riding on the wheels. It really is just a, a fight to the top of these climbs. Whereas the Covidonga kind of steps up. There's some, there's some kind of you know false flat ramps in there. You know, staircases up that climb. So there's a few points of recovery. So in a stage like that, can almost produce more big differences in in the GC than than some of these like new kind of uh, epic climbs that are being so popular in the Grand Tours. And uh, you know, talking to uh, Miguel Ana Lopez today, he just thinks that the the Covadonga is going to be very decisive. He says, you know, the, everyone's so tired right now, and he said that it's been so hot. Everyone's really just at the edge of their strength because any, there's no hiding for these next two days. He said there might not be even that many attacks, but it'll just be a, a race of attrition where guys won't be able to keep the pace. It'll just keep be able to see that natural selection of the four or five strongest guys in the race. And if someone has any legs, they can pop off and, and maybe try to get some time back. Well, I'm with you there. And that's why, you know, these hyper climbs, as much as we love them and as thrilling and fantastic as they are, like the time gaps actually tend to be usually quite small unless some guy just like gets off his bike and has to walk which you know if either one of us were racing the welter we would absolutely have to do because they're so dang steep so i i'm with you i actually think that you know wednesday might be the day that roglic takes red again just because the ramp recovery ramp recovery nature of lagos de covadonga means he might actually get uh, more time on uh old odd christian iking than on um than on gamoni tyru um, unless the guy totally just blows up and has to get off his bike. But, you know, we saw Roglic last year. I mean, he lost it near the top of Langley Rue, but it was so close to the finish and it's so steep. And you're only talking about like 10 meters here that the time gap actually actually was pretty small. Um, so you talked with Movistar. You also talked with Bernal. Um, what can you tell us about what's coming out of the Movistar camp and some, I don't know, some knowledge you may have gleaned for how they plan to approach these uh, these two big mountain stages. Everyone knows that Roglic is going to smash everyone in the final time trial. So uh, Lopez said today, I mean, basically the numbers been going around now the last week or so. Everyone thinks they need at least two minutes on Roglic to have any chance on the time trial. Thirty Ks, you know, that's uh, you know that's that's going to be a big ask for you know even if Roglic loses the jersey to thirty seconds to a guy like uh, Lopez. Um, you know, Roglic can have confidence he should be able to get it back because no one really in this top 10 can time trial as well as Roglic. So I think it's going to really mark the uh, tactics through this whole final week because um, teams will be looking for uh, maybe some chances to surprise uh, Roglic and catch him out. You know, some of these profiles, uh, Saturday stage actually, uh, at the tail end of that stage, the final 100K is just a up and down roller coaster. And I was talking to some people that, have been riding in these hills and they said it's 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 up and down but it also just twists and turn the whole way so they said with 500 meters you'll lose sight of the of the riders in front of you so that can be a huge psychological factor when you're trying to chase someone if you can't see how far away they are um even with radios you know it's still it's still you want to be able to see who you're chasing um you know so there could be a chance for an ambush you know the, the crosswinds never materialized really in the in the first half of the welta it can be windy. It might be raining. That's the big factor for in terms of weather in this last week. It's going to be kind of cool. Could be some rain. You know, these roads are kind of sketchy up here in northern Spain. They're real narrow, very steep. I mean, these roads, you know, coming down, especially on the stage on Thursday, go up and over some of these, you know, hairy climbs up here in Asturias. And the descents are like 10% 
uh, descents going down and very twisting kind of off camber corners. And if that's in the wet, you know, that's going to be treacherous. So I think that um, Roglic would be saving all of his uh, powder, keeping it dry for the summit finales those two days, try to gap people out, you know, get rid of uh, odd Christian, get in the red jersey and take that jersey into the time trial because you don't want to risk having to come from behind, even if you think you can get two minutes on, on somebody, you don't want that pressure and risk, you know, a, a puncture in a time trial that could be the difference between winning and losing. So looking at uh, a little bit further down the GC standings right now, you, you know, you said it before, it's the battle for the final podium that's very compelling. I mean, right now you'd say Roglic is, you know, definitely appears to be the strongest. He has a pretty good sized gap to Enric Moss, although that's not absolutely decided, but you have, Miguel Angel Lopez, Egan Bernal, Adam Yates, and Jack Haig, all within sort of two minutes there of fighting for the podium. And, you know, Ineos obviously it would mean a lot to them to get on the podium. Bernal has talked about how eh, he's not going to win, but it would be a huge confidence boost for him to get there. What do you say about Jack Haig? I mean, to me, this has been one of the most amazing, thrilling, and sort of undercovered stories of this year's Welta is the is the progress of Jack Haig. I mean, it seems like just yesterday he was lying on the tarmac in France, all bashed up, broken up as one of the victims of this crazy opening week of the Tour de France. Now here he is just absolutely killing it at the Welta. Jack, he's he's a funny guy in the in the mix zone every day. Uh, we talked to him about, you know, how he's feeling. I mean, he was he kept saying in the first week, you know, I'm here to help Landa. I'm not sure how I'm going to be in the mountains because of my crash. You know, my approach to the tour was far to the Welta was far from ideal, but he's really uh, rock solid. I mean, he he's I think he's right in the pole position for a podium spot. Uh, if you look at the time trialing, he probably can time trial better than Lopez. Um, you know, so he's going to be really needing to uh, you know the the fight for the podium is what's going to spice up this this fat last week. I think because you know you got Rowitz just sitting there with that huge uh, time trial advantage in his pocket. So the real fight's going to be for the podium, like you said. Uh, and it, it would be huge for all these guys to get on the podium. You know, Moss, the ne- next big thing in Spain, he was second in the Welta a couple of years ago. You know, hasn't really been able to confirm that. Even second behind Rudd, which would mean a lot to him. You know, Lopez coming across uh, to Movistar this year, a podium would be huge for him and just for that whole franchise. And then uh, Ineos, the riding on pride. You know, they got Pogachar. And UAE kind of stealing their thunder in the in the in the Tour de France, but you know Bernal, you know if he can get a podium out of this out of this ride after not being at hundred percent in this wealth, it would be huge for him. And like you just said, Jack Haig, I mean, first podium for a guy like that that, that opened a lot of doors for him. I'm pulling for him. Never been top ten in a Grand Tour. I mean, he has been racing Grand Tour since 2016. He has some pretty strong finishes. You know, twenty top twenty, but you know. Crashed out of the Tour de France, left the 2020 Giro d'Italia early. So even a top five performance would be a huge career boost for Jack Haig. And I mean, he could be then the next guy to step into that role with Landa. Well, how, this is his umpteenth Grand Tour of sort of not living up to that expectation. So um, I'm, I'm pulling for you, Jack Haig. We love a good, good comeback story, especially a good comeback from injury story. So a lot of stuff to follow in this final Week of the Welta, a hoodie's going to be going down there this week. Um, stay tuned to velonews.com. Keep checking our Instagram page. Hoodie, you've been doing really good stuff on Instagram. Um, how are you 
adjusting to the very 2021 world of being in a, an Instagram influencer? Are you like getting your angles right? You know, how are you, how are you doing it? I think I need some uh, product sponsors, you know? I mean, uh, you know, don't, don't those guys make money off wearing a funny t-shirt or something? But uh, yeah, no, it's been fun. I mean, it's always fun playing with the Instagram, doing the little odd videos here and there. And, uh, you know, the Welta is, uh, you know, it's a great race. The great thing about the Welta really is just, it is so much more relaxed, you know? It's not all the hype and tension that goes with the tour. I mean, COVID, everything's a little bit more different, but, you know, the, the press core is about a tenth of the size of, of the Tour de France, or even probably a twentieth of the size, really. Uh, they're not in a rush to get dinner every night because restaurant. In fact, a lot of times we, we go to dinner too early. We'll show up at a restaurant, then they're going, ah, no estamos abierto. We have to come back in a half an hour. So, you know, the Welta, the Welta is it's a different kind of animal, and, and it's it's been a real even though the action hasn't been great some days, you know, every day has had some interesting stories. The GC battles have really lacked a little bit of a spark, but it's always fun to cover the Welta. Yeah, go to the Welta. You're, you will never be shut out of a restaurant at 8.45 p.m. because you're there too late. Um, like Hoodie said, if anything, they'll tell you to come back in half an hour when they actually open. Uh, Hood, we've been re- loving your coverage. We will catch up with you one week from today to have a, uh, a final discussion on the outcome of the Welta and whether or not Odd Christian is going to be the newest uh, Grand Tour winner in Pro Second. Probably not. Uh, Bon voyage, hoodie.